on those things, we come to the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth takes place sometime during the time of the Judges. Sometime during the time of the Judges, we have this incredible story of a Gentile bride finding her Redeemer, who, who purchase, uh, pays the purchase price for her and makes her part of the family. So it's an incredible love story. But then as we begin the book of 1 Samuel, we are still in the time of the Judges. Samuel is the last judge. In fact, as you, when you go to school, they, they, they want you to remember two of them. Othniel was the first judge. Samuel's the last judge. If you got those two, you're doing pretty good. So as we look at it, Othniel was first. Now we're coming to the final judge. But before we get to him, before he's, he's on the scene, uh, we're going to be introduced to his family. So in 1 Samuel chapter 1, as we pick it up, we're introduced to the family of Samuel. It says, Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And as we look at this, here's what we know from him. He is a Levite of the tribe of Levi by birth. He is uh, an Ephraimite by residence. In other words, he lives in Ephraim. That's why the last phrase he says he is an Ephraimite. We know when we trace his genealogy, he's a Levite. But it's like saying his family is that of Levi, but he lives in Ephraim, so they call him an Ephraimite. Just like if, since I live in Castle Ford, I'm a Castle Fordian. Right? So it doesn't have anything to do with my family heritage. It just has to do with where my residence is. And that's gonna, it's going to play into the story as we go a little bit further, but... We're introduced to Elkanah, and as we're introduced to Elkanah, it gives us his family, and then it tells us something interesting about him. It says in verse 2, he had two wives. The name of one is Hannah, and the name of the other is Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, when we look at that, oftentimes people kind of want to run off with it and and hammer Elkanah a little bit and say, well, Elkanah, this is what happens if you have two wives. You know, it's twice as hard to make them happy. Um, What we want to grasp from this and what I want you to see from this that isn't necessarily written but is part of the Jewish tradition in the Midrash. And the Midrash says that when a man married a woman, if he spent 10 years with her and she remained barren for 10 years, he was able to take another wife. And oftentimes, as you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah, it was Sarah who told Abraham, hey, take my handmaid Hagar. Or if we go back to to Rachel, remember Rachel and Leah, it was Rachel who said, take my handmaid Bilhah uh, as your wife and have children for me through her. Whenever there's a woman who is barren, there's those things that take place. So the tradition, the tradition is, Scripture doesn't tell us, but we want to understand that society at that time, that's what the Midrash helps us understand. That's the rabbinical writings at that time. Rabbinical writings at that time taught that if a woman was barren, he would take another wife. And the tradition among the rabbis is that it was Hannah's idea. That Hannah said, take Peninnah so that you can have children, just like Sarah did for Hagar. Now maybe that is, maybe it isn't. We know that God didn't tell him to do it, Right? We know that God didn't tell Abraham to do it, did he? We know that from the beginning, God said one man for one woman, and that's how it's supposed to be. 
whenever, biblically, the Bible's not afraid to tell the truth about the people who are a part of the word. So if you took two wives, the word's going to say he took two. If you took 300, the word's going to say he took 300. God's not going to lie or beat around the bush about what you did. But every time there are multiple wives involved, you are having family problems. You had it with Rachel and Leah. You had it with Hagar and Sarah. And you're certainly going to have it with Hannah and Peninnah. You're going to deal with those issues. Because Elkanah is in love with Hannah. Hannah's the one Elkanah chose as his first wife. That's the woman that he loved. Tradition says Peninnah was the woman he married so that he could have children. But Hannah was the woman he loved. And we'll see that in the scriptures as we look at the way that he treated them. And, and as we look at them, Hannah means grace. Peninnah means precious stone. Precious stone and grace married together to Elkanah. And it says, This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Now this is why I tend to lead toward the tradition. Remember the time frame we're in. Judges, right? When everybody did whatever was right in his own mind. There was not normal behavior for people to worship. It wasn't normal behavior for them to make the trek to Shiloh three times a year as they were required by law to worship God. It was normal for them to do whatever they wanted to do. But what we see of Elkanah is, is he's a godly man. And he takes his family every year. One of the things you'll see in the story that marks Elkanah is his family, even after the time that Hannah has a child and Samuel lives with a priest, every year they go. Every year they're there worshiping. Every year they're there meeting. So we see Elkanah in the story being a, an example of a man leading his family. Now, none of us, I haven't met a man yet that is perfect. I don't care what you think. Haven't met one yet that's perfect, and Elkin is not perfect. He made mistakes. Neither was Abraham. You know, so neither was Jacob, which is, that's not a hard stretch to go by. But, so there's always going to be those issues. But what, we want, what I want you to see is, he wants to go worship. And he does it year in, year out. It marks Elkin, it marks the life that he has. And they went to Shiloh. Also, it says, the two sons of Eli. These guys are going to be pertinent to the story a little bit later. Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. So Eli is the high priest. Eli is the high priest at this time. Shiloh, you'll remember, Shiloh is the place where the tabernacle settled. Joshua said, put the tabernacle at Shiloh. They're in the land. They're not moving anymore. So rather than picking up the tabernacle and move it all over the place, they set it at Shiloh. One of the marks of Shiloh and one of the marks of this time frame and the concept of the judges and the, 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 the corrupt worship that they were a part of is that Shiloh gets run down and ultimately destroyed and the Ark of the Covenant gets lost and the tabernacle gets just mangled. And God says later on, as we study through the prophets, the Lord says to the nation of, of uh uh, Judah, he says, think about Shiloh. Look at Shiloh. If you think nothing can happen to you in Jerusalem and no judgment can fall you, look at Shiloh. Because that's where God's house used to be. And that's where the tabernacle used to be. But because of the corruption and the worship that took place, Shiloh becomes barren land. At this time, Shiloh's not barren land. The tabernacle's there. Remember the tabernacle was set up with a linen fence around it. That linen fence spoke of purity. 
And that linen fence had how many openings? You guys remember? One opening. Why? Because how many ways are there to God? One way. And that way is through who? Jesus, right? So you have three items within the tabernacle that were symbolic of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the veil of the temple or the tabernacle is the flesh of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus' flesh was torn or broken, the veil was torn, right? Making a way that man could enter into the Holy of Holies. That veil, the same exact fabric that made the veil, made every door into the tabernacle, including through the linen fence. The same colors, the same design. On the door going into the holy place, on the veil going into the Holy of Holies, and on the door, if you will, or the gate that entered into the tabernacle proper. So we have the linen fence, one door going in in each place. We have the, the brazen altar, which is the cross, right? That's the place of sacrifice. After the place of sacrifice, we have the bronze labor, which is the place of cleansing. And then after the place of cleansing, we enter into the holy place, which is the place of service. Remember in the holy place, there were three articles. On the left, as you walked in the door, to the left was the golden menorah, Right? One solid piece of gold, hammered work, not molded, hammered together, one vine. How many branches? Six, because six is the number of man. Seven is the number of completion. Man is complete when he is attached to the vine. What did Jesus say? I am the vine and you are the branches. That's what he's talking about. I'm the vine, you are the branches. And what is it that that brings? It gives light. The vine, the main stem, it, it branches out light. And then each of the other stems that come off of it, symbolizing man, reflect that light and have that same oil, the Holy Spirit within them, to also give light. The work of God in each one of us. To the right, we have the table of showbread, 12 loaves. Each of those 12 loaves for one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Each of them baked with a little bit of frankincense, a little incense in each one which is a, a, a bit of prayer. Frankincense always was a symbol of prayer and, and uh, the priestly work. And what does that speak of? Remember what Jesus said, I am what? I am the bread of life. If you walked in to the left, you had light. What did Jesus say? I am what? Light of the world. So you had the light on one side, you had the bread that spoke of sustenance, the provision, the provider, the one who gives life. And then straight ahead, the golden altar, the place where prayer is offered. Scripture tells us, that Jesus Christ ever lives to do what? Make intercession for the saints. So he is our high priest. He is the one praying for you and I. Every part within the tabernacle spoke of Christ. Every part pointed to him. You walk past the veil. You had the Ark of the Covenant, which is really two pieces of furniture. The Ark, the box, and on top of that was the mercy seat, right? And the mercy seat is where the blood was applied and the sins of the nation were forgiven. The scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is our hilasterion, same Greek word for mercy seat. He is the mercy seat. He is the one upon whom the blood is applied, the one who gave that blood and paid the price for our sin. Everything pointed to. Now, I want you to think, as a priest went into work, he'd walk through the door. He'd turn to the left, light the lamp. He'd turn to the right, take a little bit of piece of the bread. He'd go forward, offer frankincense on the altar. What? After they spent years and years and years in one place, it would leave a path, wouldn't it? He's always going to the same thing every time. You walked in, you went to the left, and the, 
check the oil in the, in the menorah. You went to the right and you took care of the bread. You came back and went forward and you went to, to the altar of incense. Every time they picked up the tabernacle and moved it, what did they leave behind? A cross worn into the grass. Worn into the place where the service was. Wherever they went, whatever they did, when they encamped, when they worshipped, when they served, was always pointing to the sacrifice that comes in Jesus Christ. And as they're going, Elkanah and his family, to Shiloh, the tabernacle's been there so long, they have built a permanent structure. No longer is it the tent that it used to be. They kind of built it and, and did. So it's like the early phase, if you will, of the quote-unquote temple. Only it's not going to be in Shiloh. And ultimately the one in Shiloh is going to get destroyed. The Philistines are going to kind of have their way with some, some battles. We'll see a little bit further down as we go. But, so they built some things. But remember, it's the time of Judges. God didn't tell them to build anything different, did he? But you're going to see that Eli and his sons and Samuel... They sleep there at the tabernacle. Well, there was no place for them to sleep, but there is now. You see, they built structures around it. And because it's been there for so long, it's been so permanent in that place. So you have these other priests there, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And it says, And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Now, when we talk about this, what we're talking about is a peace offering. Remember, there were offerings in which the entire offering was consumed, and that was given to God. The burnt offering, the sin offering, nothing was eaten off of that. But the peace offering, they would come, that's a barbecue. The peace offering was you brought your offering to the Lord, a hunk of it was cut off for you, that was barbecued, and you gave that to different members of your family, and you ate it together. The priest got some... Everybody got a piece. The Lord got some of the fat and the things that were burned up to the Lord were his. So here's where we're going to see the favoritism coming from Elkanah. He always gave some of the Peninnah. Now here's two things we know about Peninnah. Not only does she have child, she has children. And she has more than one son and more than one daughter. Because it says to her sons and daughters. So we know she has multiple children. In a little while, I'll tell you... uh, the standard belief is she had 10 sons, and we don't know how many daughters. So we're talking about a lot of children that she had. And so he would give them their portions. But look at verse 5. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. Elkanah loved Hannah. He, that was the wife he loved. And whatever the circumstance was around wife number 2... The things I know about Elkanah is he's a godly man who wants to worship and come before the Lord and bring his offering. He's not a perfect man. He's a messed up man. We'll see a few places. He's not perfect, just like all of us. He's a man like all of us can be. And he, he loved Hannah. And he loved Hannah despite the fact that she was barren. Now that's important to grasp because in that time, being barren was like, You know, you were hated by God. You were cursed if you could not have children. That's the way the society looked at it. And it was often the case that a man whose whose wife could not give him children would hate her. And that's not the case with Elkanah. In fact, when he gives his offering, he makes sure that, that Peninnah has what she needs and her sons and her daughters all have what they need, but he gave Hannah double. Now, Peninnah can see that, right? They're all sitting at the same table. 
They're all sitting there. She can see every time throughout the years and all the children that she had the favoritism of Elkanah to Hannah. Now, how's that going to work out? Not very good, right? That's why, you know, biblically, God's word never was that there were to be two wives. Because you're always going to, as according to Jesus, love one and hate the other. That means you're going to love one and love the other less. You're not going to, it's not going to be equal. How many times in the scripture do we see the exact same thing? Who did Abraham love? Sarah, right? He didn't love Hagar. He had a child with Hagar. He, he loved Sarah. Did that cause problems? Sure it did. Jacob, who did Jacob love? Rachel, right? Rachel's the one he wanted, but he got tricked into marrying Leah first. For their whole life, he loved Rachel. Did Leah know that? Yeah, absolutely. Did it cause problems? Sure it did. Sure it did. So in the, same, the same thing is true here. We see this favoritism is going to cause grief. And we see it in the very next verse. In the very next verse, in verse 6, it says, And her rival provoked her severely. To make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, Peninnah, if Peninnah had ten sons, we'll see as the scripture goes on, I think that's uh, Elkanah alludes to that. If Peninnah had <clears throat> ten sons, and she'd been having all of these babies, that's, that's, that's quite a number of children to have from, from one woman. Can you imagine how, many oppor- how much opportunity she had to provoke Hannah, who had none? Every time the kids got up in the morning and had to be fed, every time uh, they went to school, every time something special was going on, was an opportunity for her to provoke Hannah just by just get a little dig, right? Just a little statement. She don't have to be, you know, obtuse about it. She can just just throw them little things in, little jabs. Over the years, little jabs cause a lot of grief, don't they? So we see this going on. She's being provoked. And ultimately, what do we know? We know that Hannah has not had a child because who doesn't want her to have a child? Who opens the womb? God. Now here you have Peninnah, who doesn't seem to be a very godly woman, who's, who's you know, kind of poking at Hannah. And maybe it's just because of the way she's been treated all these years, because the husband loved uh, Hannah more. And, and that may be, but we see the way that she's behaving. Her character doesn't speak of that, that godly, righteous character. Yes, she has children. And, and Hannah, who is a godly woman who loves the Lord, doesn't have any. There's just no justice, right? What do we really see working here? We see the sovereignty of God. Because God is waiting for the right time and the right moment to bring the greatest judge the nation of Israel ever knew. Probably the greatest prophet and the greatest priest. All one person. And it was God's timing, not ours. And it was God's purpose. (laughs) And we see that This provoking, look what happens. So it was year by year when she went to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. So you see Hannah getting broken hearted over. She's bummed. She's having a hard time seeing anything else good. She's having a hard time recognizing even the love of her husband. Because all she can focus on is what she doesn't have. Anybody ever been there? 
You go through life and you're facing different things in your life and all you can focus on is the hard part or the struggle or what you don't have. And we tend to miss out or lose sight of the grace that we do have. And I think for Hannah that's happening. But she's going to do the right thing with her, with her frustration and with her bitterness. We'll see in a moment. It says in verse 8, Then Elkanah her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat, and why is your heart grieved? He's as sensitive as every man, right? Clueless. What's the matter? And then he says, am I not better to you than ten sons? Now, all she wants is a a child, right? That's all she can think. And here we see Elkanah allude to the fact, and this is why many of the rabbis said that uh, Peninnah had ten sons. Because Elkanah says, am I not better to you than ten sons? Isn't my love more for you? But, and, and I believe Elkanah truly loves Hannah. But just like a lot of men, not very sensitive, not very understanding. Most women would be like, oh yeah, you're the prize. Yeah, yeah, I win. I know that's what Kathy does when I say, but babe, you have me. So, and, and basically that's what he's saying. Oh, but you, you have me. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle. Now again, that word for tabernacle is a word for building. It's not the typical Hebrew word for the tent. This is now a building that they've built up. Pre-temple kind of a concept. And here he's sitting by the doorpost. So some of the things have changed, right, in the way that they worship. And... It says in verse 10, And she was in bitterness of soul, and she prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. We're going to see two things that Hannah does here with her bitterness that change everything. First, she prayed and took it to the Lord. That's that's the first step into allowing the bitterness in our soul to turn to something better. Bitterness is always going to push us away from God, drive us away from walking with Him. But if we'll allow the Spirit of God to work in our heart, and we'll submit to God's sovereignty in the situations that we find ourselves in, and we bring our cares to Him, doesn't the Scripture tell you to cast your cares upon Him for He cares for you? We bring those cares to Him and we submit to His sovereignty, His right, knowing what God knowing what He's doing, then it's going to change our perspective, and that's what happens to her. So she comes to him in prayer, and that prayer leads to a change in her perspective or in priority. As we see, as we take a look at her prayer, look what she says. So she prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Now, as far as we know, up until this time, Hannah wanted a child for herself. She wanted a child so that she could stop having the ridicule of Peninnah. She, she, it was for her. But now she goes to the Lord in prayer. She says, Lord, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him to you. All the days of his life. Now, I want you to think about the vow that she just made. Because she keeps it. And this is a woman who has waited her whole life to have a child. And when God gives her the child, she's going to give that child back to God. And there's a very important principle for us to apply in our own lives. The children that God gives us aren't ours. 
The children that God gives us are our responsibility to teach and to guide and to, and to show the way, but they belong to Him. He knows what He's doing. And He wants us. That's why the firstborn always in Scripture had to be redeemed. The Lord said, everything that breaks a womb first is mine. Now, when you had a firstborn child and you wanted to redeem that child, you went and made an offering for that child. It was okay. You, got, you kept the child. But here, Hannah's not going to make that offering for the child. She's not going to pay the redemptive price for that child. She's saying, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. Not only that, he'll be a Nazarite from birth. One of two. Both of them were judges. The first guy's name was Samson. He wasn't so good. Second guy, Samuel, he's on the money. He's on the money. So here, she gives this promise. So we see... First, she goes in prayer, and God changes her perspective. Now it's not, give me a child, I want a child. I want to. Now she's ready to give that child right back to the Lord. It's definitely a change in her heart. Now look what it happens. And it happened, as she continued, uh, continued praying before the Lord, that Eli washed her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, and only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Anybody ever made a judgment based on what they think about somebody else before they actually knew? Yeah, we see Eli is about to put his foot in his mouth all the way up to the knee. <laughs> Head first sometimes, yeah. The, the idea is, as we, as we look at it, here's Hannah. She's praying. She's just opening her heart to the Lord. But she's not crying out. She's not making a big show of it, right? Because the Lord hears her. She's down and she's praying. And, and the scripture says her lips are moving, but you can't hear anything. She's just opening her heart to the Lord. Okay? She's opening her heart. And so as she's opening her heart, Eli looks at her and he makes a snap judgment. Well, she's drunk. She must be drunk. That's what Eli's thinking. So, so Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. Man, any time in my life I have made a snap judgment, it has been wrong. And Scripture tells us, gives us a concept that concept is God gave you two ears and one mouth, right? So you should listen twice as much as you talk. The Lord said it like this. We should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Slow to speak. Listen. Watch. Not snap judgments. And here's a problem. Eli is a... I don't want you to miss this. Eli is a terrible father. Because his sons are... are not, not only are they non-believers, they're non-believing priests who are ripping the people off. And Eli's not dealing with it. And here Eli is, because of the own chaos, his own chaos in his life, it's always true, it's easier to see sin on somebody else than look at yourself. You agree? It's always easier to look at somebody else and be able to tell what's wrong with their life. Well, I can tell you what's wrong with such and such. Well, instead of taking all the energy to figure that out, how about you look in the mirror... And let's do some cleaning on our own self and, and consider our, our own self. But here Eli says this, and Hannah answered. And I like Hannah doesn't get mad. Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I'm just pouring out my soul before the Lord. So do not consider your hand servant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken till now. 
Literally, she says, don't consider me a daughter of Belial or a daughter of Satan. But later on, that same accusation is going to be made of Eli's sons. That they are sons of Belial. Sons of the devil. She says, don't consider me a, a, a wicked woman, a daughter of the devil. You know, I'm just pouring out my heart to God. I'm just making my requests known to him. And then I think we really see Eli's heart because Eli recognizes, whoops, you know, <clears throat> there I go again, putting my foot in my mouth, and he's going to bless her. He says in verse 17, And Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And it says, And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. That's huge. Because she comes and she lays out her request to the Lord. She really leaves them there. And she goes back and she eats and she's not going to... Her, her countenance is not down. Her, she's not depressed. She's not sad. She lays it out before the Lord, leaves it with Him, walks away and, and is able again to see the fingerprints of God in her life. The good things that she does have. And not just the things she doesn't. And it all began with a prayer and a change of perspective. If we will allow that to occur in our life, it doesn't mean that God's always going to do what you want. God made Abraham a promise of having a child, but it is going to be 25 years of waiting before he gets the promise. Now, Abraham's going to be have times where he's doing really well, and Abraham's going to have times where he's having a real hard time trusting in the Lord. Here for Hannah, when she laid it out for him, she was good. She gave it to God, and she's golden. She's going to walk away. She's going to eat. She's going to be able to enjoy the time that they spend there in Shiloh because she cast her cares on the Lord, and they stayed there. Then in verse 19... It says, Then they rose early in the morning, and they worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So they go back home, continue a normal marital relationship, and we see uh, Hannah is going to conceive. So it came to pass, in the process of time, that Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. <clears throat> Samuel's like a play. Literally, Samuel means the name of the Lord. But the idea is that what she's saying is, I asked of the Lord and he heard me. She, it's a play on two Hebrew words she puts together to make uh, Samuel. So, so that's the idea. That's why she says, because I've asked from the Lord. This is the promise. God's kept his promise and so she names him in honor of the fact that God keeps his promises, that God hears us, that God answers our prayer. Now it says, Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. So again, every year Elkanah went to Shiloh. This is during the time of the judges, when there was no God in Israel and everybody did what was ever right in their own heart. And here we see... Elkanah, I think, is a man who really honestly wants to follow the Lord, wants to worship Him. He goes and he spends his time before the Lord. But the Scripture tells us Hannah didn't go. For she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, 
And then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. Now, Hebrew tradition is that a child would be nursed until the child was three years old. At three years old, the child would be weaned. And at that point, Hannah is going to bring him to the priest. At the time that child's three years old, she is going to give him away. The, the thing that she asked for and desired most in her life, she is going to give to the Lord. And she is going to have Eli raise him. Oh, that's Eli. Remember the guy with the two sons of the devil. But she made a promise to God. Now, you and I would look at that situation and we would say to Hannah, you're crazy. What are you doing? Eli is a knucklehead. He can't even raise his own kids. And you're going to give your three-year-old to him? But no, who is she giving her three-year-old to? To the Lord. Is God able? He either is or he isn't. If he is, then it doesn't matter what Eli has failed in the past before or not. She gives him to the Lord, and the Lord is going to raise her son. And the Lord is going to watch over him. And the Lord is going to protect him. Just like God did for Ishmael when Abraham gave Ishmael, Ishmael to the Lord. Even as he sent him away, God's there, God honors, God watched him and promised, did just as he promised Abraham he would do. So, Elkanah, now remember, this is kind of key for us as we look at the Old Testament. When you make your vows to the Lord, the Old Testament said, if you make your vow, keep your vow. Whatever vows you make, keep your vows. But it also said, if a woman makes a vow and the husband doesn't like it, what can he do? He can override it. He can say, nope, I'm sorry, my wife was speaking like a crazy woman, and we're not going to do that. So, but Elkanah doesn't do that. When Elkanah, Elkanah knows about the, the deal, right? Elkanah knows. And so when, when he, so Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Keep what God said. We know God wants us to keep our vows. Keep your vow before the Lord. Let the Lord establish his word. It's going to be, that's the way to see. That's why I say Elkanah, he's a, he's a good man. He's a man who wants to serve the Lord. He's a man who wants to follow the Lord. So the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bowls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young, in fact, three years old. Three bowls. Why three bowls? She brought a sin offering, a burnt offering, and the offering for the Nazarite vow. And she could have brought three small things, but she brought three big things. She, when they made this offering, it wasn't, hey, what can I, let's, where's that sickly little lamb? Don't we got a couple of doves in the back we could pull out? Oh, they gave three bowls. That was a big deal. That was a big deal. So they came and they, and they brought those things before the Lord. This is a time of worship for Hannah. She's not dreading it. She's not afraid of it. She's coming with her heart open, rejoicing to give her three-year-old son. I mean, can you even imagine what that's like? To give your three-year-old son to a man who raised two sons who are 
crazy people that God's ultimately going to snuff out, gone, and give your three-year-old to him to raise. Man, that's faith. What did Jesus say about that? If you have faith like what? A mustard seed, you'd be able to say to this mountain, be cast, be removed and cast into the sea and it would be done? That's not saying you have to have a lot of faith, is it? Because last I checked, a mustard seed is not a big thing. It's little. It's little. This is the faith of Hannah and the trust that she had of her Lord and Savior, trusting him. And so they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. So she comes, uh, she comes before him presenting her son. Again, it's an act of worship. For the child, for this child, verse 27, I prayed and the Lord granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. And that word translated lent literally means he is the fulfillment of my vow. He is the fulfillment of my vow. So I'm giving him to the Lord. It's not the idea that he's on loan to God and later on God's got to pay me back. It's just the idea that this is my payment of my vow. The payment of my vow that I made to the Lord. He is given to the Lord. He is his. So they worshiped the Lord there. So here you got this picture of Hannah who's waited for a child all this time. She has a son. She, she nurses him for three years. He's finally time to be weaned. And with joy, she brings her son to Eli, the high priest, presents him to the Lord, offers a huge sacrifice of three bulls, a sin offering for, for the child, the burnt offering, a consecration, and an offering for the Nazarite vow, right? She said from birth. A Nazarite. Now, what did that mean? Do we remember? It meant, one, that they would abstain from the fruit of the vine. That meant they never drank of the fruit of the vine, ever. The second part was, they would never touch the dead. That meant, even if their own family died, they weren't pallbearers. In those days, your kin was the ones who prepared your body for burial. But a Nazarite vow said, you're never going to touch a dead body. You're only going to be consumed with the living, not with the dead. And the third thing, they would never cut their hair. So that the outward sign of their vow would be visible to all the people who saw them. And that's who Samuel was. Nazarite from birth. And it is all an act of worship. Paul said it like this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of service or worship. Worship. And this is their worship. As she comes, worshiping the Lord, she keeps her vow. And then she lays out this this song, this this prayer. And what we see in this prayer, we're going to go through these next 10 verses, 11 verses uh, of chapter 2, what we see in this prayer is Hannah knew God. She knew what he was like. She knew what he was looking for. In fact, she's going to prophesy. And as we look at this, it's going to give us insight into the character of God and Hannah's understanding of the character of God. And that understanding all comes from having that 
that time of prayer before the Lord and that right perspective and that willingness to submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God. That as God's working in our life, these things that occur to us are the best for us right now. Not to buck against it, not to get mad, not to say, what in the world, Lord? You know, before I was walking with you, life was easy. Now I'm walking with you and it's all falling apart. Well, apparently the storm or the, or the battle that you're in is necessary to develop the character you need to train you to have the endurance that you must have to walk with the Lord until He returns. So, don't, don't hate the chastening of the Lord. Don't hate God's correction. Just submit to it. Allow God to work in your life. Accept the consequences of our choices. Accept the battles don't kick against the goads. Just lay out your request before the Lord and be set free. Hannah was. She sings this song after she gives her three-year-old away. That's incredible to me. My first child, you'd have, you'd have had to take him, I don't know how you'd have got him. Now, when he was 14, I'd have given two of you. Just, just look at me like you wanted them. Yeah, here you go. But at three, man, I don't think I would have done it. But this is a song she sings. Let's take a look at it. Hannah prayed and she said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. The first thing that we want to see here, we want to make a quick note. That that phrase, my horn, is simply, uh, you can always substitute my strength. The horn always speaks of strength. In fact, and remember we talked about, we talked about that on, on Sunday. We have a uh, expositional constancy, which means when we study the Scriptures, if, if a horn means strength in Genesis, a horn means strength when we get to Revelation. It's not something new. It's not something different. When the Bible says he was full of horns, it's saying he's full of strength. Or he had seven horns. Complete strength. It's a picture. It's a holding that same expositional constancy all the way through the Word of God. Unless God says uh, the horn means something different, it means what it has always meant. Everybody with me? So when we see that phrase, my horn, she's talking about my strength. is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies. Now, who were her enemies? Come on, it's just the, it's the, her rival, right? Pelnana, the one who's been busting her chops because she don't have no kids. And so because she's been given her grief, she says, I smile at her now. Why does she smile at her? She smiles at her because I rejoice in your salvation. In the same way we're able to smile at our enemies if we rejoice in the salvation of the Lord. When we're, we're coming up Sunday is the... Is the uh, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And we're doing a few special things on Sunday in regard to that. And, and one of the things I showed before, we'll, we'll probably show it again on Sunday, is the, the video on where I have decided to follow Jesus came from. And it's true, by the way. I had people, a lot of people ask me, is that really how that came about? Yes, that's how it came about. The fellow who wrote it was martyred in his entire family. And... <clears throat> That this Indian wrote the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. It's an Indian folk tune. And 
as they were sacrificing his family, he didn't know what else to do. He just continued to sing the song. I had decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And as he did that, and as he was that witness, the reason he was able to do the things he was able to do is because he rejoiced in the salvation of the Lord. Now I want you to think about it. For the 10 minutes or 15 minutes or even if it's an hour long ordeal. And the first people they killed were his children. But how could he still rejoice? Because he knows in a few minutes I'm going to be with him. Because the Bible says, do not fear man who can only take your life. What, what is that? Man takes your life here to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. You either believe it or you don't. If you believe it, you can rejoice in the salvation of your Lord because you know they took my children. My children are with Jesus right now. And it's only going to be a few minutes and I'm going to be right beside him. And then they killed his wife in the same way because he could rejoice in the salvation of the Lord. And then they killed him. So in that small, you know, kind of short period of time, he lost everything. But the minute they took his life, what happened? He gained it all and more. Because now he's in the presence of his family. He's in the presence of the king. He's in heaven eternally. He'll never be absent from the Lord. He'll never be outside of, of wherever Jesus Christ is. So he can rejoice in the salvation of the Lord. When you truly understand the salvation that we have in the Lord, the salvation that we have in God, you're able to do that. Because you recognize, hey, what can man do to me? Take my stuff on earth? Take, go ahead. Take my truck. It's going to get, tires are going to wear out, it's going to get flat tires, the engine's going to break, it's going to blow up and burn. It's, it's just the way it works. Take my guitar. Strings are going to wear out, they're going to break. Somebody's going to step on it, it's going to get a hole in it. That's what happened to all my other ones. Why do I want to hold on to any of that stuff? Rather, I'll rejoice in the salvation of the Lord because that's eternal. That's permanent. So that's what she's saying. That's her focus. And that needs to be our focus to encourage us. My focus is on the salvation of the Lord, not on what I don't have, but on what I do have. And that's what she's doing. She goes on. No one is holy like the Lord. The first thing that she notes about the Lord God is that God is holy. The character of God. No one is holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Now, when she says that phrase, rock, she's not talking about that little stone you see laying in the sand. She's talking about that big rock coming up out of the sand that you can cling to. When the wind blows and the sand's all over the place and you can't see nothing else, you get to that big old rock and latch on, and you know you're going to be fine. Because that rock is still going to be there when it's over. Or if you picture that, the, 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 the pictures we like to look at the ocean, the ocean waves breaking over top of that rock. But after the wave hits that rock with all that force, the rock's still there. The idea is the same as the strong tower in Scripture. The strong tower was the area within the city that was the main fortress or the place where everyone would flee if they were attacked. And the wealthier people put their houses closer and the poor people lived further away. That was the way the society worked at that time. But in the Scriptures, the Lord says, I am your strong tower. And anyone who flees to him, anyone who runs inside him will be saved. The same here, Hannah's saying, hey man, there's no one holy like God, set apart 
he's, he's special, he's amazing, he's incredible, and there's no rock like him. You cannot shake the foundation of God. He is unshakable. So we build our house where? On a rock, right? We build it in the sand, what happens? It falls, crumbles, it won't stand. The, the foundation is not solid. But if the foundation is in the rock, it will stand. And that's what she's talking about. Then, <clears throat> the second thing she tells us is that God knows and weighs all human deeds. In verse 3, Talk no more so very proudly, and let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The scripture says he can decide between the very thought and intent of the heart. I'm not even sure we know the thoughts and intents of our heart. But God knows. God is able to see. He's able to weigh human deeds. He knows if we did something so that someone would think we were great or if we did it for the Lord. He's able to tell. Then in verse 4, she says that God gives strength for the journey. In verse 4, the, the, bow, the bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who are stumbled are girded with strength. God is able to take strength from those who trust in their strength and give strength to those who have none. God is able to take the strength from your enemies so that they are feeble, even though they're stronger than you, and to give you the strength you need for the journey that you face. God is a God who gives strength or takes it away. In verse 5, he goes on and speaks of God's ability to satisfy our needs. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne how many? Seven. Hmm. wonder why she said that. Well, we'll discover as we go on in... Uh, Verse 21, that Hannah goes on to have three more sons and two daughters. But here it says seven. Seven. And we know seven is always the number of completion in the scripture. The number of completions. Maybe she's trying to say, hey, I have exactly the number of kids God wants me to have. Tradition in the Midrash said that uh, uh, Pelnina, because of her (coughs) attitude toward Hannah, every time Hannah gave birth, to a child, two of her children died. Every time she gave birth. And as it came, this is tradition, as it came to her fifth child, the Pelnina came to her and said, Hey, would you pray to God for me that these, my last two children won't die, that they will be uh, able to live. And Hannah prayed for her. And the Lord said, Hannah, because you prayed, her two children are going to live. And so they were counted as Hannah's children. That's what the rabbis teach. Listen, that's not scripture. I'm just telling you their teaching, their tradition of what's going on. That's how they see the seven. That that's where the seven come from. Either way, it doesn't make any difference. What she's saying is, God satisfies the needy. I didn't have any children. He gave me an abundance. He gave me all I needed. If I didn't have food, he gives me the food I need. He gives us this day our daily bread, right? And so God satisfies our needs. And it says, not only is even the barren has borne seven, but she who became, or she who had many children has become feeble. That's where the rabbis get the concept from. Verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The next thing she knows about the Lord is that God is the master of life and death. Not just random chance. 
Now, we don't always like that. But it, do, it doesn't change the truth. God is sovereign over life and death. Every life, every death. God is sovereign. She, she recognizes that. God is the master. He brings to the grave or he brings up. In verse 7, God is the master over wealth or poverty. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among the princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. The Lord is sovereign over financial state. I could have been born anywhere in the world, but I was born here in the richest country on earth. And I have been to Peru to watch kids three years old living on the streets because mom and dad don't have enough money to feed them. So they give them a little shoe shine box, and even at three and four years old, they learn to say, shoe shine, shoe shine, even if you have sandals on. I have not met an American yet who has gone to Peru who had a four-year-old walk to him and say, shoe shine, and had not let him shine their whatever they have, barefoot even. Now, he didn't choose to be born there. Did he? Who is sovereign? God. God allowed him to be born in that. God is sovereign. God is in control. It's not for his destruction. It's not so that he'll be destroyed or because God doesn't care about him. The Bible says God so loved what? The world. Does that include everybody? Last I checked. So that means God loves the poor, right? It has been said, if he didn't love the poor, he sure made a lot of them. He loves the poor. And he loves them, and he has a plan for his life. Even there. And he has a plan for mine. God is sovereign over those things. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world upon them. How long is this world going to last? As long as God says... For he is sovereign over the lifespan, if you will, of the universe. The day it was born and the day that the pillars come crashing down. God's sovereign over those things. And she understands that. Why? Because she has submitted herself to God's sovereignty. To allow God to work sovereignly in her life. And not only that, in verse 9, he will guard the feet of his saints but the wicked will be silent in darkness. She says, he will guide your steps. Now, doesn't that fit with Scripture? What's the Scripture tell us? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what's he do? He will direct your steps. That's what he says. He guards your steps. The steps of the righteous. The steps of those whose hearts are his. But the wicked, they don't have any idea where to go, do they? They're wandering around in the dark. That's what he says. The wicked are silent in the darkness. For by strength, no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces from heaven. He will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Now, I want you to think about who's saying all this. Hannah, who is a woman who was barren, gave her child to the Lord, and now she's speaking like the wisest of the prophets. I mean, you can hear these same things spoken of by great prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. But this is Hannah. 
She knows that God's going to judge the ends of the world. She knows that no man in his strength can stand before God. She understands him. Why? Because she knows him. Because she's given herself to him. She loves him. She's submitted unto him. And then listen to the end of verse 10. He will give strength to his king. What is the one phrase that marks the time of the judges? In those days there was what? No king. Why did she say he'll give strength to his king? Because the king's coming, isn't he? We can tell by the second half of that verse. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn. What is horn again? Strength. So he's going to exalt the strength of his anointed. What's the word for anointed in the Hebrew? You guys all know a little Hebrew. I know you do. What's the word for anointed? Messiah. He and exalt the horn or the strength of his Messiah. He will give strength to his king. Who's he talking about? Jesus. And he will anoint the strength of who? The Messiah. Who's that? Jesus. Who's saying this? The greatest prophet that ever lived? No, Hannah, a woman who was barren, who trusted the Lord and has given her three-year-old to God. And this is all part of that worship that she gives to him. And here it's, you know, forever laid out for us in the pages of Scripture. And then just verse 11, we're going to finish right here. We'll pick up the rest next time. Then Alkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. They left the three-year-old behind. Now, we know by Scripture Hannah's going to have at least three more sons and two more daughters. So God opened her womb and left it open. She's going to have more children. God's going to redeem that life at one time that was broken. And the thing is, I was studying as I was preparing this, man, I just could not, I had a really hard time wrapping my mind around it, okay? The fact that she left her three-year-old with Eli. Eli's a high priest, and Eli loves the Lord. Eli's a good guy. He just allows you father. Can you just, just, just take a couple of moments and think about that? In response to understanding giving our children to the Lord. Because they're not ours, they're His. And He was able to take care of Samuel, right? Samuel becomes the greatest judge, arguably the greatest prophet and priest. The anointer of the first two kings of Israel, right? The one who is going to anoint David ultimately and point the way to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So, but it all starts with a woman who is willing to give her child at three to God and not to a guy who had it all together and he was great dad and he had all the signs the, all the signs pointed to the fact that he wasn't a great dad but she didn't do it because she trusted Eli she did it because she trusted the Lord and I want you to think and I have to think myself the same when I look at my kids and there are times when there are, are things or directions or stuff God's calling us to do Kathy and I with Joe and where's Joe going to go to school and is he is it best for him to be at this school or is it better for him to be at that school? And we very distinctly felt God moved us to where we are, which meant Joe left the school that was best for him by our concept of what they could offer him to a school that couldn't do the same things. 
And then when I study this, I hear God whispering in my ear, so, Jackie, you trust me? Because ultimately, Joe's mine. And maybe they don't have the best, but there's something that I'm going to give him there that he would have got no place else. And do I, it's not do I trust the teacher more, do I trust the school more, it's do I trust the Lord. The Lord brought me there. God's sovereign over life and death, over rich and poor, where I was born, where somebody else is born. God's either sovereign or he's not. You can't have it both ways. If God is sovereign, then he is also sovereign over the little things in our life. Even when the little things are the things that have our heart, the tightest grip on our heart. That's our kids. God says, I love them and I'll take care of them. And to me, that's what Hannah teaches us. Hannah teaches us we can trust the Lord who is sovereign in our life. Over our life, he's also sovereign in the lives of our children. And he loves them more than me. And I'd love to make all the choices for my kids. Don't get me wrong. I got two of them in their 20s and above. And I'd still like to make all their choices. I'm, I'm working on my second grandbaby on the way in, on, on uh, Christmas Eve. And I'd still like to make all their choices. But I have to put them in God's hands. Because God is able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. He is able to do it. Amen? Won't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you so much for just an opportunity to come before you, just an opportunity to (coughs) study your word, Lord, and allow your word hopefully to to find a fruitful place within our life in order to take root and, and just bring that fruitfulness. God, we pray, Lord, that you would just help us day by day to grow, to understand and trust in your sovereignty and your ability to work in our lives in the lives of our children. Lord God, that you are able to do the things you promise. And that we, like Hannah, could reach a place where we can submit ourselves to your sovereignty in our life. To the things that you are doing. And not use that as a cop-out that means I don't do anything. But to realize God is moving and working in the circumstances of my life. And I need to seek him for what he would have me do next. Not what I think but how he would direct. Lord, I pray, God, by your Spirit, you would anoint us to see the fingerprints of God in our life and to be led by you as we trust in you with all our heart, as we lean not into our own understanding or our own wisdom or how we think things ought to go, but in everything we do, Lord, may we acknowledge you and will you guide our step. God, we give you thanks and praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close tonight with a word of worship. We invite you to hang out and worship with us. And we'll meet you out in the foyer around uh, something. Is there anything out there to be around? We'll meet you around the pumpkins. (laughs) God bless you guys.
broke up the curse of death for you. You are the risen one. Heaven and earth will be made new. You are the chosen one. You are Messiah, the world true Lord. We lift you higher as we cry out. Holy is the Lamb who died and rose again. Salted over all, our Messiah reigns, every knee will bow, thousand tongues will sing, holy is the Lord, Jesus our Messiah reigns. Rescue the prisoner for you. You are the saving one. You comfort the broken and the poor. You are the truest one. You are Messiah. The world to Lord. We lift you higher as we cry out. Glory to the Lamb who died and rose again, exalted over all. Our Messiah reigns, every knee will bow, a thousand tongues will sing, holy is the Lord, Jesus our Messiah reigns. You are Messiah, the world's true Lord. We lift you higher as we cry out. Glory to the Lamb who died and rose again. Exalted over all, our Messiah reigns, every knee will bow, a thousand tongues will sing, holy is the Lord, Jesus our Messiah reigns.
tonight, Lord, may we learn from Hannah, Lord, that she, knowing the promise of God and knowing her salvation, Lord, could smile at her enemies. Lord, uh, may we be that smile, Lord, wherever we go. Lord, may we, uh, people say something about them because we have been with you, Lord Jesus. Lord, uh, may we be a light to this world. Lord, go with us. Lord, uh, bless our fellowship. Lord, bless the remainder of this week. In Jesus' name, amen.